Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Ausbiz Australia's only live streaming business and markets channel. Great to have your company between now and 1pm for The Call, a show that's all about uh, taking a look at 10 stocks that you, our viewers, have sent in for uh, uh, analysis by our expert panel and also a stock of the day, something that's in the news that we get an update from our experts on. And uh, terrific to have back Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool. Scott, how are you, sir? Gosh, I'm very well. Thank you, mate. Yourself? Okay, very good indeed. And also Kevin Robinson from uh, Team Invest uh, joins us today on the panel. Kevin, good to have you aboard. Hello. Yeah, good good to be back. I was on once before. It's good to see everyone again and good to meet Scott. Yeah, terrific. Well, we've got a uh, a big hour ahead of us, so uh, let's get stuck straight into it. And uh, I thought I'd take a look at one of the top corporate stories today as our stock of the day. James Hardy raising its full year earnings forecast for a second time, counting on strong demand for its fibre cement products from a booming US housing market. Um, this as first half profits nearly triple, thanks to double digit sales growth with net profit topping 270 million US dollars and global EBIT touching a new record, company declaring an interim dividend of 40 US cents a share. Uh, Scott Phillips, pretty impressive numbers. Uh, What do you think of James Hardy at the moment and uh, does it still have value in its share price? Koshi, these are great numbers, really, really strong numbers. The reported profit up about 200%, but the adjusted profit up about 30%, which is more reasonable. Sales up 23%. And as you say, a booming market, not only in the US, by the way, but really strong results here at home and in other parts of the global empire as well. Um, nothing to dislike about these numbers at all. The question you ask, though, is, is the right one in terms of both valuation. And I suppose we've got to ask that question about the cyclicality of the business. You know, James Hardy's demand, of course, is all about housing construction, housing renovation. Great when it happens, when it doesn't, when it stops. And we certainly saw housing go, not backwards at least, you know, growth stop and, and reverse to some degree in the US post the GFC and their big housing build back then. These things can get ugly really quickly if and when they do. The challenge for investors, I think, is trying to work out how much to pay. 38 times earnings on historical earnings on these new numbers, probably closer to 30 times, so not as expensive. But if you're paying 38 or 30 times for a, for a, a building materials company, you've either got to believe that growth continues for a very long time or the high level of sales and profit can continue at very least for an extended period of time to justify these sort of numbers. The hard part is trying to work out where we are in the cycle because it doesn't need all that much more to start to make this look like a good set of numbers. I I have to say that the operational success is fantastic. Uh, A bit like commodities companies, James Hardy isn't responsible for how we price their shares or even what the cycle looks like. All it can do 
is make hay while the sun shines. I can't buy the shares now, Koshi. If you're going to buy cyclical businesses, you want to buy them at the bottom, not closer to the top. Um, yep. Just because of the way those cycles work, right? You average out across the cycle and say, right, how much is James Hardy likely to earn over the cycle? How much do I want to pay for that over the cycle? If I get a good price, you know, jump in. Uh, James Hardy just doesn't look cheap enough, nor does it yep. look average enough in terms of that cycle itself to believe the, the PE is reasonable to pay. Again, doesn't mean it can't go higher. doesn't mean the good times can't roll for a bit longer. I'd be very, very surprised if we don't see a lower yeah. price for James Hardy shares at some point during the next cycle. Okay, so shares down seven cents after the announcement. So market thinking like you at the moment. Um, if you had James Hardy shares, is this the top of the market? I don't know about the top of the market, mate. It's a hard one. I, it, it, impossible to know exactly where we are by definition. We don't, you know, it's, it's like bubbles. You don't know them until they pop, right? You look back and go, oh, yeah. of course it was a bubble. Um, I, I don't know. It, it, it looks like the, the results look like they are towards the top of the historical range. The price looks high on that basis. Is it the top? No idea. Is it likely to be in the top, you know, 10, 20, 30% of all time sales and share price? during this part of the cycle, I'd be very surprised if it's not. So, yeah, look, if I had to flip a coin and say, is it, is it you know, likely to be towards the top of the market? Yeah, I think it is. Okay, so would you keep holding if you're already in it and had a good run? I don't think you can, Koshi. I mean, because, you know, if you're going to see a lower price at some future point, I think you will. You kind of want to take your money and run to yep. some degree. Not in a desperate hurry, but, you know, if the price is going to go down, if there's better ideas elsewhere, again, tax is always important. If you've got a massive tax bill to pay, maybe it changes the decision. But yep. I can't see it beating the market from here. If you're not going to beat the market, then find something that will or, or buy the market itself yep. rather than hold something that I expect from here will actually lag the market. Uh, Kevin, what do you think of the result yes. and, and James Hardy as a stock? James, uh, the result was excellent, as as Scott says. I have to, uh, you know, I agree with everything Scott says there. Um, and as as a business, it is, as Scott says, cyclical. Um, it's not one that we look at uh, at the moment. We're not. Uh, our methods tend to favour businesses that are smoother in their profits and uh, are not so cyclical. We're not against cyclical businesses. We just like to see them uh, make profits even in the downtime reasonably consistently. So for us, uh, yeah, the returns are not great. As Scott says, the PE is very high for a building services uh, uh, business. Um, the debt to equity for us is too high at about 87% as well. Mm. So it doesn't meet our filters. The stability of uh, the stability of growth of the earnings uh, is also getting a little low. It's not too low for us, but it is it, it is a little low. Although the sales stability is uh, is is very good at uh, about 93%. Um, so it's not one that we would look at um, at this stage until uh, those those figures tend to become more stable, smooth out, and if they were to you know get rid of their debt a bit. Okay. All right. Uh, let's go on to the stocks that um, you want us to have a look at. And uh, Kevin, Freddie wants a view on ALS. The uh, um, they're the big sort of. <laughs> I I imagine ALS as this big laboratory where lots of people in white coats um, measuring um, sort of assays from mining, drilling results, but they've, they've, uh, they test and measure uh, for the, um, the, the mining area and inspecting, but they've also got into food and pharmaceuticals. They certify um, different products. Um, Kevin, what do you think of ALS? 
Yes, I mean, it, it's a good business. It's been around for quite a long time. Um, and it was, interestingly, it was one that we did look at a number of years ago and we did some work on a number of years ago. And then they uh, they purchased, if I recall correctly, they purchased a big, uh, they made a big purchase uh, that didn't go terribly well for them. Um, and they, their PE is rather high at 30, around 30 by our figures. Um, it's also, again, their debt to equity, we've got it at 90%. Um, that's too high for us. Other than that, they actually don't look too bad on our filters. So their stability of earnings is good. The stability of sales is good. Uh, and their return on equity is excellent at around 20%. Uh, return on capital is 12.2%. Um, so that's still above our 10%. So the figures actually look very good for us. They've got a good long history. They may, particularly if they if they manage to reduce their debt, they may well come back down into onto our radar, which would be interesting. Okay, so it's debt that um, wouldn't get you interested. In yes, ALS. exactly. Uh, Scott, ALS. Really fascinating business, Koshi, and one of the companies that was a real poster child back in the mining boom, the kind of very early 2010s, 2009, 10, 11, 12, um, and did really, really well. When the when the story stopped, when the mining boom stopped, so did ALS's business, and that's when they diversified, as you already mentioned, of food products and other things, which is a really, really good move. The challenge, I think, for an investment in ALS, if you look back at the historical financials, I've got the numbers here, in 2012, they made 62 cents a share in profit. Last year, 44 cents. Now, you don't have to say, well, the past has been bad or has fallen, therefore the future is terrible. The real question though is, how do you work out what a reasonable level of earnings is? Not exactly like James Hardy, but not miles away either. It's a it's a slightly more, or slightly less cyclical business, I suppose I should say, more stable business, because that testing regime tends to go on regardless of price, regardless of volume, mind or, or food made to some degree. So there is some stability to that business. The challenge, you know, profit nicely higher than last year, but as I said, meaningfully lower than 10 years ago. So you gotta try and work out what price to pay. Current is 28 times. And that has to suggest either uh, the market's always gonna pay that sort of price for ALS, and that's possible, or they expect profits to grow meaningfully in future. That's, I think, where you've got to be a, a pretty significant optimist. You've got to believe they get back to a level of profitability they haven't seen in now eight years, back to that 2012, 2013 level of profitability to really justify the current share price. Maybe they get there, and if they do, maybe they sustain it, or maybe they don't. Uh, and, and again, you know, you don't. when you're an investor, you don't have to make line ball calls, right? You don't have to say, well, yeah. 51.49, I guess I'll buy. You look at it and say, well, I don't really know that it's even a line ball call, and if it is, um, then am I getting rewarded enough to make the decision worthwhile? I think, again, decent business, seemingly well run. Um, as Kevin said, should be a, should be a reasonable operational performer, but I don't want to pay 28 times earnings for that business, particularly until or unless they show me there is a meaningfully higher level of sustained profitability. So for now, it's a no. Happily mm. come back and look at it if the price falls, because it's one of those businesses, as Kevin says, you, you know, the quality-wise, you want to own. You just yep. need to be offered a price that reflects the future growth potential. Sure. Okay. Um, something a bit different now. Sol wants a view. 
Um, Scott on core lithium. Uh, Sol says the run-up in lithium has been insane. So I'm wondering if I should just <laughs> sell my holdings now and buy back later in. Of course, uh, core is um, an explorer focused on lithium, copper and, and mineral in South Australia, Northern Territory. Um, has its Finnis Lithium project, which uh, has been given the go-ahead to uh, to develop. They'll begin construction uh, on Finnis in March next year. It's been given the go-ahead. Um, core, as you can say, its share price over the last 12 months <laughs> up almost 1,200% as lithium, as Sol said, has gone insane in that 12-month period. Uh, what do you think of Core Lithium and, and Sol's question? It's a really good question, Gosh, I'm glad he says insane because it saves me having to say it, seeming like I'm being uh, using hyperbole to, to address this one. Um, worth also mentioning, by the way, Core Lithium used to be called Core Exploration, and they changed the name to Lithium. The company might say because it more reflects their business. I might say maybe because people like Lithium stocks, and if you call yourself Core Lithium, you're more likely to be found by those investors looking for Lithium stocks. I couldn't yep. possibly suggest that was management no, innovation. No, never. Um, when, exactly. exactly. So, so, so let me walk away from that one quickly. When it comes to court, you're paying a billion dollars for a business that hasn't made a cent in profit in a decade. And so we talk about looking forward. And when I talk about, you know, James Hardy or, or, or ALS looking forward, saying, I don't know what the future looks like. You're paying a billion. Is used this example last time. Let's say someone comes to you and says, hey, guess what? I've got a lithium operation. Give me a billion dollars and I'll give you any profits we make. And you say, well, no, that sounds like a really, really, really terrible idea, but thank you for the offer. Sometimes when we break it down into individual shares that are currently 64 cents each, and we say, well, look, it might double, it might half, who knows, just put your money in. It somehow seems like a, a less risky, almost a more sensible decision. But as we've said many times, as most of your guests will say, Koshi, when you're looking at a business, you've got to look at the business itself and not just pretend that it's a, you know, a pizza cut into a million different pieces. If you take Core Lithium and say, do I want to buy this for a billion dollars in the hope that maybe sometime in the future I might get some money back? You might. And then you can feel free to do that. Just don't do it with my money, please. Uh, doesn't mean it can't do well. Doesn't mean it won't do well. It just means there is no way to tell at this stage. This is the, the, the realm of hype and hope. Um, again, not only the company's fault, by the way, plenty of people jumping on lithium all over the place, hoping that it's the next big thing. It's just, you know, so much hype, so much promise, so much potential, all those things, just zero delivery. So even that construction starts next year, takes a couple of years. Then they get volumes up to some sort of commercial standard and, and, and volume. Then maybe possibly they get some revenue and some profit. Yeah, no, you can't you can't buy this one with any with any investment lens. It has to be pure speculation. If you want to do that, knock yourself out. Uh, but you're putting you're putting your money on on a, on a number at the casino. You're not investing the way we traditionally understand okay. it. All right. So what if you sell? You're in it. You've had your twelve hundred percent run up, and you're thinking, "Yep, that's great. Take my money and run." But, you know, investors' remorse, it keeps going up. You go, oh, God, I could have got even more. Do you do something like, you know, take your money and run, but leave your original investment in there? So it's only tiny compared with what you've taken out if, if, if you want to use it as your TAB money, if you like. Yeah, I think that's fair, Kosh. Look, I mean, the, 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 the proper investment advice is no, you take all your money out because right. if it's not going to make you money from here, leaving $1 or $100 or $1,000 in there is all crazy because, you know, if it's too expensive, it's too expensive. The reality, though, is that we're not automatons, we're not robots, and we have investors' remorse, we have buyers' remorse, we have sellers' remorse. If we don't sell enough, we say, oh, we should have sold more. If we sell too much, we say, I shouldn't have sold that much. Yep. 
you know, humanity is not built for investing. Let's be honest. We live in that really emotional world of of regret, and that's that's and that's the reality, right? So your question is a really important one because Sol and other people are absolutely confronting that very question. And yeah, I, I think you know the official investment advice of how do I maximize my absolute dollars in a purely rational world? I'd say sell the whole lot, walk away. But the reality is if you're going to feel remorseful and kick yourself or send me hate mail, uh, if this thing goes badly, then yeah, leave some money in there because it'll make you feel better about selling the rest. And if that that's a win-win, right? So I win because I sell out and make a big profit, which is great. I also get some money left behind so I don't risk too much. And if that does go down further, I say, okay, well, guess what? I made all that money. I sold out. I feel better about the losses I'm now incurring. Right. So yeah, behaviorally, uh, from, a, from an emotional perspective, a really, really smart way to go, even if it's not like officially, technically, the right thing to do investing wise. Yeah. All right. Now, Kevin, does Call Lithium pass even one? Even one of Team Invest filters. I've got, I've got a funny feeling it wouldn't. <laughs> I think you're on to us there, Koshi. Although they've got cash. I noticed they they've got $38 million cash in the bank. Yeah. They're debt-free, so maybe that's... They've got no debt, but where did the cash come from? Yeah, well, yeah. And that's, uh, as Scott says, uh, you know, they haven't made a profit. That's the rule number one. And I, I agree absolutely with the whole rational thing. I mean, we, we wrestle with this in Team Invest all the time, that in theory, we're supposed to be completely rational. Um, and our method is very rational. Um, but of course, we talk about all the time that all of us have our specky stocks. Yeah. We just try and keep them as small as possible. Um, so, because as Scott says, we are emotional creatures, and you know we like we we like our little punt on something that might come good. You know, um, I think if I was in if it was me, if I was in Saul's position, I agree with Scott. I would sell out and completely. And I'm not recommending that he does that necessarily. It's it's entirely up to Saul how he feels. Yeah. For me personally, I would sell out if it was my specy and just walk away and try not to look at at the company in the yeah. future, so I avoid that yeah. regret. And and that, and that's the thing. As investors, we've got to say we made twelve hundred percent in a yeah. year. Even if somebody else buys my shares at sixty-seven cents or whatever, for them to make twelve hundred percent on top of it, it's it's unlikely. So yeah, you know, don't at regret. this stage, at this stage, we often call it the bigger fool theory. So you're basically holding on to it in the theory that there's a bigger fool who will come along and pay more. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's being, right. that's being blunt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, it's quite right. And that, that's why I love talking to you guys as professionals because it makes us understand how we should act and gives us some really good strategies. So thank you both for that. Um, Chris, uh, Kevin wants a view on Tassel Group. Um, this are, these are the big Atlantic salmon farmers from uh, Tasmania. Uh, Chris says, I'd like to hear what your, your panel thinks. They always seem to be recommended by analysts, but the price never moves. So, <laughs> so is Chris not just looking at the right time, Kevin, or what do you well, think I, of Tassel? I, it is interesting. Scott mentioned something a little while ago about uh, effectively separating the uh, business from the share price. And yep. uh, Warren Buffett always talks about, uh, you know, look at the business as if you're buying the entire business. You know, you, you are only buying a piece of it with the shares, but, but think of it as if, you know, would you buy that business if you were buying the entire business? And that tends to take it away from the share price. 
So on that measure, you know, if it's a good underlying business and the share price is not going up, and if if your earnings and so forth are going up, then you're getting more of a good business. Right. Uh, Buffett, Warren Buffett also says that anyone who is investing and expects to be a net investor in the future always wants the share price to be low because then you can buy bigger chunks of, uh, of a, an excellent business. In terms of this one, it doesn't really pass our filters. The return on equity is too low and the return on capital is too low. It's a 6% return on equity we've got and about 44 Um so it doesn't meet us there. The debt to equity is getting high-ish. It's not a complete no on that. And of course, uh, that what that all that means is that our expected returns on this are uh, are basically too low for us. Um, but I'd say uh, you know assess the business and 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 look at it in that that way rather than the share price, and then think, do I get a good share price? Um, do I get a good chunk of the business for my money? Yep. Okay. Um, speaking of Warren Buffett, I, I read this morning overnight he um, the Berkshire Hathaway results came out and he's got a record amount of cash um, yes. sitting in Berkshire. He, he has never had more cash. So he's been selling down into this bull market, which I must admit as an old codger, I've been worried about how high it has been for so long and, and Buffett's going to cash. And I'm thinking, oh, okay. Is yeah, the, you wonder. Yeah, is the is the profit talking, uh, Scott? What do you think of Tassel? Tassel's fascinating, Koshi, and I think Kevin's right. You're right in terms of the question and saying, look, the business seems to go well. Nothing's moving. The problem is if when you zoom out a little bit, it made in earnings per share last year exactly the same as it made ten years earlier, and so the business kind of has gone nowhere over that time. Now, if you break it up. It had five really good years where it kind of stepped higher and higher and higher and higher profit-wise. Looked like it was onto something. Looked like it was building some scale going somewhere. And that's kind of drifted away. So between 2012 and 2017, earnings per share went from 23 cents to 41 cents and then drifted all the way back down over that next five years, back down to 23 cents a share again. And the challenge, I think, for investors, I think the, the thesis is right. This is one of those stories where you've really got to follow the results. Yes, you want to use your judgment. Yes, you want to think about what the future might be. There was a very, very decent thesis about, hey, farmed seafood is the future. Um, it's sustainable if it's done well. There are animal welfare issues, of course, but it's in theory sustainable. It's easier to stock, to catch, to breed, to deliver. Um, you can meet growing demand. You don't have to go and fish the, the wild sea. So the, you know, the, the idea behind it was a really sound one. The problem is sometimes your investment thesis doesn't play out with the numbers. And either, and for sometimes that can be, okay, I'm just going to have to wait and be patient. At a business level, again, as Kevin said, it's not about the share price, but at a business level, you can say, well, I'll be patient and see what happens. You probably got to ask yourself now, 10 years later, is there really a growth story there for Tassel? Is there something I'm missing or the company's missing? Because if you waited 10 years for growth and you're back where you started a decade later, I'd be asking myself right now, is the Tassel story real? Is there really the sort of growth I expect from this business? If I haven't done it over the last 10 years, what's going to be different other than hope, other than other than wishes, other than best intentions and best efforts? And I'm sure management are their absolute utmost to deliver a, a great business here. But, you know, sales are up meaningfully over that 10-year period. Profit hasn't moved. And yeah. so that tells you it hasn't yet cracked the nut of sustainable growth. If you have a really strong thesis as to why that all of a sudden will change, or not all of a sudden, over the next three to five years will change, and you can reap some benefits, then by all means, go for it. But just make sure you haven't look, you're not looking back and saying, that's the same story we've been telling ourselves for 10 years. It hasn't happened yet. Sometimes you have to look reality in the face and say, 
you know what, probably not going to work out. It probably isn't working out. Let yeah. me take a take a step to the side. Now, for all that, 14 times earnings, 4.2% dividend yield. There are many, many less attractive ideas on the market right now. Mm. Um, plenty of higher PE stuff with less growth. <coughs> uh, but again, if it stays at this level, if, if in 10 years time we're having the same conversation, you can expect the share price to have hardly budged anyway. Yeah. And so we're still going to be back in the same, the same story. I'd be waiting for a little more traction, a little more evidence of some sort of growth story. Again, it can still fall over. It fell over after five years last time around, but at least look for that growth to be coming in at the bottom line as well as the top line before committing your capital yeah. to it. And, and the fact that its biggest competitor, Hewan, is under takeover bid and seeing its yeah. share price rocket and Tassel hasn't moved at all, uh, is the market going, well, they're not really a takeover bid either. <laughs> I think that's probably part of it. I think there's very much a sense of, you know, we don't... And, and all the other problem, too, is if there's two players and all the smart money is chasing the other guy, yeah. yes, sometimes you say, well, maybe there's a takeover premium here. The rest of the time you say, hang on, I'm now fighting against a, a bigger, uglier competitor who has better resource, better people. Yeah. And frankly, the smarter people in the room saying, these are the guys we're going to back. Um, yeah. Sometimes sometimes you get a takeover premium in the price. Other times people say, no, thanks. I'll, I'll stay out of this game. It might be for me. Yep. Uh, Kevin Anthony wants a view on Joyce Corporation, the big uh, retail betting uh, franchisor and owner. They own brands like uh, Bedshed Franchising, retail betting stores and retail kitchen stores. What do you think of uh, Joyce? Yeah, they're actually uh, they're actually not too bad. Although at the moment, I'd have to say that you know, in terms of investing, retail is a crowded field. Yeah. Um, there are, there are a number of retailers that are looking really good. This is one of the themes we discuss as well: is that periodically uh, certain industries come up with a lot of players that come up really well in the numbers um, because conditions have been good, and that's the case with retail. Um, Nick Scarly, uh, JB Hi-Fi, all of those are, you know, looking yeah. really good. They've had a good run uh, through COVID because all of that travel money that has not been going overseas, a lot of people have been sitting at home buying stuff online and, and you know, on retail and stocking up their houses and updating their computers and so forth, updating their bedding, obviously. So you have to wonder, you know, will it last? Have to look at the business carefully and say, will it do well? In terms of our figures, um, it's actually not looking bad. It hasn't come up on our radar yet. And looking at the figures, the main reason is because it's uh, just over $100 million market cap after a big run-up in the share price. So when we do our triages, we have a cutoff of $100 million um, market cap just to make sure that we don't look at anything too small. Um, so if it stays up there, um, we, may, we may well look at it in the future, but not for us right now. Okay. Scott, Joyce Corporation. I agree with Kevin. There's plenty of great retail stocks out there. And I don't, there's nothing I dislike about Joyce, but it doesn't grab me for one of any of the reasons that Kevin's just mentioned. Um, at 15 times earnings, it's more expensive than a great chunk of the remainder of the companies in this space. Um, it's also had that phenomenal growth Kevin talked about and the runner be mentioned. Um, profit has effectively doubled in three years. And again, you look back to either say, hey, this is a business, great growth, going somewhere, going to be something. Or you say, hey, that looks like a COVID impact to me. And do we go back to updating our betting? Do we go back to that sort of stuff in a year or two or three years time? What does normal look like? And the biggest challenge with retail over the last probably 18 months and definitely over the next 12 months is going to be, what does normal look like for this retailer? If you have a retailer that has 
got a massive COVID bump, but that all goes away once consumers say, well, I've replaced the TV, I've replaced the bed, I've replaced the whatever. I'm not going to go and buy a bed every year. So does a business like this have some trouble? On the flip side, there are other businesses who benefited from COVID because they've alerted the, the, the consumers to the fact they exist. Online retailing writ large has had a spectacular last 18 months. And most of those consumers will buy online you know, to some degree or other, not the same degree necessarily, but they become online shoppers. My mother is one of those people who, yeah. from not wanting to shop on, you know, <laughs> on, online at all, is now saying, well, I think I bought everything I'm, I can on, there's nothing left for me to buy online. Yeah. Um, Mum won't be watching, so I can say that. Uh, <laughs> and it's one of those stories of, you know, those people will stay online. They will continue to buy from online retailers. Joyce, as I said, that growth, the last year was the best year for more than 10 years. Most yeah. of that last 10 years, profits were about half of the current level. And so you say, okay, well, is it really 15 times earnings or is it 30 times earnings? Or is it yep. somewhere in between? It's just not cheap enough to allow for that. There are some retailers, you might talk about one a bit later, that yep. do, I think, fall into the basket of, you know, yes, a COVID boost, but still looks cheap and is, is a really high quality retailer. Nothing against Joyce. It does a fine job of doing what it's doing. I just don't think you can make the argument yep. that on those numbers, it's cheap enough to believe you're going to get a good value moving forward compared to what's happened over the last 18 months during COVID. Yeah, yeah. And, and compared to other retailers, you say, yeah, uh, JB Hi-Fi coming up in the second half of the program. Uh, Ken wants a view, Scott, on uh, Lend-Lease, the big uh, global property developer, investment management uh, group, uh, pipeline of $110 billion in, in the next three years. We had Simic come up yesterday and Gaurav uh, mm. uh, and Mason. Uh, both said Simic was horrible in a horrible sector. Uh, they prefer Lend-Lease, though, but it's still yep. in a horrible sector. <laughs> I, uh, the, only, the only worst, the only bad thing about following those two guys is that uh, if they've used all the good lines, gosh, I've got nothing left. Oh, okay. uh, it is a really, really <laughs> terrible sector. It, it is a, here's the problem. When, you, when you're doing large-scale construction, you've got two things going against you. It's largely a cost based deal that you're doing. If you want to develop a large piece of land or a large project, you are kind of in a cost plus environment where everybody else is bidding for the same thing. Yep. And when markets aren't always efficient, in construction they tend to be, so margins tend to be terrible. On top of that, if you're doing construction for somebody else, as the construction company, you're normally signing yourself up to say, if there are cost overruns, I'll wear them. Hmm. And so you're really in this, this situation where heads you don't win much, tails you lose. And that's a really, really tough environment. You've got to be right a lot and make a little bit each time to add up to a really good business. And it's just really stupidly hard to do. There's nothing against landlords. It's just a really tough bit. It's like airlines, right? Even the best airlines. Yeah. You know, Qantas has done a spectacular job of just staying in business. Alan Joyce deserves his pay just for not having the company go broke on his watch, let alone making a lot of money for shareholders. So yeah, it is a terrible industry. It's and, and you know, great for the people who are buying things, right? This is this is how competition's supposed to work. It is yep. supposed to push margins down. It's supposed to give good deals to consumers, and in this case, to their to their business customers. But that's that's what's supposed to happen. So no, it's it's a really ordinary business. Profits been going backwards for best part of the last decade. Um, there is a construction boom going to happen. We've been saying that for a little while. It's kind of started. So maybe they get lucky for a couple of years. Maybe the share price does rise because profitability might return for a few years. So if you're a cyclical investor, I could kind of almost imagine saying, hey, you know. Maybe you want to take a punt at this point, and I wouldn't hate the idea if you do it with your eyes open. That's what you do as a as a right. business. You know you're doing it well, all that kind of stuff. If you're actually good at it, not if you wish you were. If you're actually good at it, this is one where you might go, hey, 
you know, there, there's some there's some tailwinds for a few years, but you really want to time your entry. You really want to time your exit, and you've got to be lucky. That's a that's a tough trio to try and wow. bed down. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'd agree with Nathan and, and Gorev. Unfortunately, and give this yeah. one a miss. And and particularly Kevin, if you're looking at say 20 maximum 30 stocks in your portfolio yeah. there there is a question you ask yourself gee are there easier companies to follow and analyze going forward uh, why go into a complex one my uh, my my dear old departed dad taught me one thing about investing inadvertently but he taught me to look at the advantages of being a small investor. And one of the great advantages of being a small investor is you don't have to buy any particular company. Yeah. Um, so that's exactly what you're saying. And, and as you know, we, we, we tend to concentrate on what we consider to be the best companies. And I'd have to say there are better ones around. I mean, this Lendlease hasn't made a profit for the last two years at all. It's been making losses. The other thing about the industry, uh, that Scott's quite right about the way it works, the other thing you notice about the industry is they all, when it when times are relatively good, and it's a relative term, uh, all the developers tend to pile in. So they tend to cut each other's margin, margins, and then they get they all get caught because it's a crowded field, things go down and they're in trouble. Yep. And that seems to happen, you know, time after time. Yep. All right, let's just recap the first uh, five stocks that we've covered so far, including James Hardy. Our uh, our stock of the day is uh, a no from both Scott and Kevin. Same with ALS. Uh, Core Lithium, 1,200% increase in 12 months. Uh, both Scott and Kevin agree. Take your money and run. High risk. You've done really well out of it. Uh, Tassel a no, Joyce a no, and Lendlease a no as well. Um, here at the call, we've got our own fantasy portfolio. We've been tracking since the 1st of July last year. Thanks to NAB Trade, all the stocks that get two thumbs up go into the portfolio. If they come up again and don't get a thumbs up, or a, at least a hold, they go out of the portfolio and we take our profits on it. And would you believe Core Lithium has been part of the cause portfolio, uh, now goes out. So the our fantasy portfolio has taken its money and running as well. Uh, <laughs> if we look at how the portfolio has been tracking for the week up, uh, almost one and a half percent for the month, three and a quarter percent since the 1st of July this financial year, up almost 9%. Since uh, inception, it's up just over 47% since the 1st of July last year. Uh, some of the stocks recently added, Rhythm Biosciences as a high-risk uh, speculative buy. It's... Um, a company that's been spun out of uh, CSIRO. Uh, MedAdvisor, Seven Milk West Media, Smart Parking and the Vanguard US Total Market Share Index ETF. Some of the stocks taken out. Um, A2 Milk, Crown, Star Farmer and PointsBet. You can see all the stocks and ETFs in the calls portfolio at osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. We keep uh, updating the performance every day. All right, let's get into uh, the second half of the call. Tony wants a view, Kevin, on uh, Pacific Edge. It's a cancer diagnostics company um, building and commercialising cancer diagnostic tests that um, hopefully will make a difference in the detection and management of cancer. Um, it's a New Zealand-based diagnostics company. Um, uh, recently raised $80 million um, ahead of a dual yep. listing here in Australia and New Zealand. 
Yeah, they've only they've only just recently listed in Australia, in Australia or are yep. looking to list. Yeah, in Australia, but they've been going in New Zealand. Um, and yes, it's it's one of those health care companies, health technology companies, whatever you like to call them. Um, they've not made a profit. Um, and they've had multiple capital raising. So they, they, it's one of those ones where they say, um, you know, buy, buy our shares, buy our company, give us some capital so that someday in the future it might work. So obviously, from that point of view, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, meet our filters and, and, you know, it hasn't been listed long enough in Australia, although we, we can look at uh, New Zealand companies. But basically, it hasn't made a profit. Um, I, it's one of those ones that you see every now and then. I hope it succeeds. Yep. Um, I hope they get some brilliant stuff because that, that's the kind of thing that would benefit uh, humanity, would benefit us all. Um, mm. But certainly as an investment, we wouldn't be looking at it at this stage. Okay. Scott? Yeah, I agree. A billion New Zealand dollars for a business that has hopes and dreams of doing something we all hope it can. Cancer diagnostics is a really, really attractive area because look, it may not have the margins necessarily of a cancer cure or treatment, but if you're diagnosing something and you can become the core uh, diagnostic test, then everyone who may have cancer, who has had cancer, who has got cancer, will go through some sort of diagnosis or re-diagnostic testing regularly. So it is a good business from that perspective if they can crack it. The problem is it's one of those big if things, you have small word, big big results or big consequences. Um, there, there is no revenue, there is no profit. It's a billion New Zealand dollars, close enough to a billion Australian these days. Um, it's just way too way too hard to predict what the future might look like. As, as with lithium, someone somewhere eventually will make some money in, in biotech, maybe it's cancer diagnostics, maybe it's in Pacific Edge. There is no way to handicap this race. Um, you just can't know whether it's worth yeah. 100,000, a million, 100 million or a billion. Uh, if you can't know the answer to that, you, you can't reasonably invest in it. Um, again, uh, speculative punt if you wanted to knock yourself out. The one thing I would mm-hmm. say, Koshi, we talk about these kind of businesses a lot. It's really important to remember, don't buy these businesses because you're supporting the company. There are some investors who say, well, I'm supporting the cancer diagnostic industry by buying these shares. Remember, you're not buying them from the company, you're buying them from someone else who's selling them. So the money doesn't go to the company, doesn't matter a zack to the company whether you own them or not. Just, just, just keep that in mind. Yes, we all want to, we like holding those things. We feel better about somehow we're supporting them. If you want to donate some money, do that. If you want to buy shares in maybe a new capital raising to support a company, you could argue that one, although it's still probably not a great investment idea. It may be philanthropic to some degree or other. But if you're buying shares in the secondary market, you are doing zero for the company. You're just shuffling the pieces of paper between owners outside the business itself. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. We often get caught with that. Oh, I'm supporting them going forward. But yeah, yeah. you're buying off someone else. Uh, Bob, really wants view, Bob wants a view, Scott, on acro form work and construction. Uh, he says, industrial company works at the high margin end of scaffolding and form work. Uh, the company has major projects in Sydney Metro, Melbourne Metro, in addition to 40 bridges on the Bruce Highway. Uh, forecast large infrastructure growth in the Brisbane market. Through acquisitions, they also have a foot in the door of the mining sector, currently yielding at 5%. Um, looks to be growing with no sign of slowing. So obviously a bit of a fan of it. Um, what do you think? Mm. I, I had never looked at this company, Koshi, and I'm really, really glad we were asked about it because it gave me a chance to dig in. I really like the fundamentals of a business like this. If you can be a largish player in a reasonably small niche, 
you're normally in a pretty good spot, right? Because it's yeah. not in anyone's interest to come and take you on. No one's going to put commit to you know a, a huge amount of capital expenditure and scaffolding on the off chance they might beat you to your own business. You, you kind of you don't have to think of yourself, but you're you're a big player in a small, a big fish in a small pond, which is always an attractive place to be. You know, capital-wise and in terms of returns. So I really like that. I like that doing the real nuts and bolts type stuff, that's really positive. You expect there's long-term demand for this sort of business. So that's all really positive. It's the sort of business I think I'd really be, I really like to own actually. It's one of those kind of on the, on the watch list yeah. now companies. Because if you get it for the right price, you can kind of assume it's gonna just tick along and, and hopefully grow steadily and slowly, but probably not hugely. And I think that the, the real, the phrase in the question that really grabbed me is the forecast future growth in Brisbane. And that's the bit you kind of have to have a view on to know whether or not you want to buy this company. It's not super expensive. It's trading on 14 times earnings, which is pretty attractive. $120 million business, which is pretty good. The problem is profitability has been kind of all over the place. So per share, lost four cents in 2017, made a cent, made three, made five, then made two. So you've got this real fluctuating business. The good news, if you like, is the, the, the revenue tends to have ticked up and continuing to grow. And I do like continued revenue growth as a marker of success because you want to see the profitability. Of course you do. But if you can find an industry and a segment, a category where you can keep growing, that's a good sign that your customers like you, they need you, and there's a market there for your product. So, mate, I'll, I'll give this one a cautious buy, I think. Um, okay. it, it, you want to be a little bit careful with it because this could well be – you know, uh, the better time uh, of, of, you know, the times to come. If that forecast comes through, of course, you might do well. But you've also got to buy more capital equipment to, to fulfill that demand. And then when demand falls off, you're kind of stuck with it, nowhere to go. We've seen plenty of mining services companies with plenty of equipment and no work to do. This is mining services, of course, but you take the, you take the analogy. So I'll, I'll make this one a buy on price, outlook, and industry dynamics. Um, just if you're going to do it, I wouldn't say even keep it on a short leash. Don't buy anything you're going to sell in a couple of months if it doesn't go the way you want it to. But if you're going to buy it, just be a little bit mindful of making sure that growth story continues to play out. If there is some sense that maybe the growth it expects isn't there or it's not winning market share, then maybe you want to say, okay, well, this one didn't work out and leave. But it sure. seems inexpensive enough for me to buy. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Kevin? Um, yeah, I, I agree with Scott. Largely, although it, it doesn't it doesn't meet our filters, um, I have to say debt to equity we've got it about ninety one point five percent, and as Scott says, the stability of earnings is low, so the stability is about by our measures about fifty seven percent. So as Scott said, up and down, and the same with uh, with the sales return on equity and return on capital are both below our 10%, which we like. We do, I, I will have to say, we do tend to like businesses that are high margin businesses. So, you know, that bit of it gets a tick from us. Um, although we also prefer businesses who can do that with low capital intensity and low debt. Um, so it doesn't meet our filters, maybe someday. Okay. All right. Kevin Raj wants a view on Horizon, the old national rail. Um, it uh, operates the rail network hauling coal from uh, the central Queensland uh, coal fields to uh, to the ports. Um, there's some speculation that it, it's gearing up to buy One Rail Australia. It was speculated in the media um, a bit. Um, but the question from Raj is... Um, has the share bottomed out now, or is it a value trap? Uh, what are the risks associated with the company and also the sector? Um, Raj is referring to if you're, if you're, if you're shipping coal, uh, what's the future of the coal industry and therefore your customers with the whole ESG layer going on top of it? 
That, that's that's an interesting question, and uh, the coal industry is an interesting one. Obviously, uh, in in uh, Glasgow just recently, um, we've had all those discussions around will Australia come on board and all of that. And coal is one of our biggest exports, so one of our biggest earners. Yep. We've also got some very high quality coal. Uh, coal, even with renewables coming on worldwide, and the, the the fact that coal is not desirable, I don't think coal is going away. Uh, rapidly, it'll still be around. I think for a couple of decades, maybe more. It may well ramp down, uh, which is entirely possible. Now, in, in terms of that, though, this particular business, uh, the debt is very high. So, if they are going to buy someone else, I wonder where that uh, where that money is going to come from. Um, and their return on cap- their return on equity is good, but their return on capital is low. So they they they're getting their return on equity largely from their debt. Um, so it it's, it doesn't come up on our filters. The P that we've got is about eleven point eight, which is lowish at this stage. Uh, depends on your view of that particular industry, but uh, not not for us. Okay, um, Scott, uh, Kevin's sort of right. It's a, it's a bit of a common theme among some of. Our expert panels is that, yes, probably no more new coal mines will be given the go-ahead, but there'll still be demand for coal um, through all these legacy power stations and some networks around the world. And and coal prices have been at record highs, haven't they? Mm. This is one of the hardest ones to to forecast, Koshi. If you look at the business now, it's trading on 12 times earnings and a dividend yield of 7.8%. You look at that and go, where do I sign, right? Why wouldn't I buy the yeah. stock? The challenge, I think, for investors is the upside is relatively limited from here. It's not going to double the number of coal mines, as you say, it's pulling from. It's not going to double the number of tracks. It may do that deal, but if it does, it's going to have to pay money for it. So there's no free lunch there either. Maybe we'll get some scale benefits. So maybe there's a bit of upside from that particular purchase. But that's kind of the last act. After this, the question is how long, how much, in other words, how much coal and what do they get for it? And mm. as I said, I don't see a lot of upside. So you kind of what you're doing now is you're drawing two lines across a graph. You've got the status quo that kind of continues from here till some other point. And then you've got the second line, which probably drops away from here at some unknown rate of descent. Because as you say, eventually those coal mines are uneconomic for the miners themselves. Eventually the rolling stock has to be replaced and someone's got to decide, do I fund that replacement without the certainty of the coal I'm getting out of the ground? What price are the coal miners going to get? Can they afford to continue to bring it out of the ground? Now, as you say, high right now, and probably goes higher actually, because if you think about the, the economics of this, as renewables take over, then what happens is the lowest cost or the highest cost providers go out of business. And so you kind of, the last men standing are going to be the lowest cost providers who can probably charge, if not, you know, a king's ransom, they could probably charge a decent price because it will be for a while a seller's market. And then that market probably collapses as well. Yeah. And so the market is trying to work out how much do you pay for a business where let's talk net net zero 2050. And again, to keeping the ideology and the politics out of it directly, some point in the next 29 years, the market's assuming no more coal in terms of no more coal being burnt. Now, 30 years is a, is a lifetime or two lifetimes for most investors. And so you could absolutely say, look, I'll hang on to 2043 and then get out. What you don't know is how quickly Queensland coal goes away. And more importantly, as I said, how much money the, the Horizon business makes in the meantime. And that's, I think that's the nub of the question that we're being asked in terms of what are the risks and why wouldn't you buy it? So I think your best case scenario is the current price. Um, maybe a little bit more over time because maybe they eke a little bit out of margins. Maybe the dividend will, will absolutely pay for most of your return. So there's return there. But over time, I wouldn't want to bet on this business being as solid as it is today. I think it's probably a 
a slowly wasting business. Yeah. Maybe maybe it doesn't start wasting for five, ten years. So maybe maybe I'm being too pessimistic. Um, but I think it will. It does waste away. It has to almost by definition, unless we end up with a coal mine, you know, remaining by 2050 because that's part of the net part of net zero is they still export some coal. Someone else makes some savings somewhere else. But so many guesses, mate. You've got the economics. You've got the politics on top of that. You've got things such as like you know the old social license, which is a bit of a kind of a loaded term these days. But you know, you know, is a rising is the Queensland government, other coal mines, other banks going to lend money to these people? So yeah. much risk there in that ESG layer. You you mentioned. I just think it's it's a really hard. I wouldn't blame anyone for buying it and saying, you know, I'll take my chances with with politics because we all know how slow politicians tend to move. Um, so I wouldn't blame anyone for doing it, but I couldn't, in good conscience, say I think this is a five or ten year market beater. I just I think it's really unlikely. Yep. You get a nice yield for a while, and that might be enough for a lot of people. I just don't think it's a market beater mm-hmm. from here, so I wouldn't buy the shares. Okay, and they're at a five year low on on that graph two in a booming market. Yeah. Um, a stock, uh, Scott, with a totally different looking graph is JB Hi-Fi. <laughs> Holly wants yeah. a view on that, uh, who's the big discount retailer of home entertainment products and software and electronics and white goods. Um, and I, I was reading it has, it does more, if you, if you wonder why the stores look the way they do, it does more toner, turnover per square metre of retail space than any other retailer in the world. Now, it, it, JB Hi-Fi is a phenomenal retailer, Koshi. When we, you know, if you want to buy a company, start buying quality and then work out whether you're paying the right price rather than going the other way around. So don't just look for cheap stuff and then say, gee, can I justify buying a Ryzen because it seems cheap? Go the other way and say, hey, I really want to buy a fantastic quality business. Is the price cheap enough to buy? That feels like the same question, but it's important to put them in that order. Yep. JB Hi-Fi is absolutely, hands down, one of the best retailers, you say, great sales per square meter. Also, fantastic cost of doing business. They measure the kind of running cost of a business as a percentage of revenue, and it has amongst the lowest cost of doing business ratios in its category in the world. Now, of course, there's others with different numbers for different reasons, but in, in, this, in the space that it's in, it is probably the most efficient retail, not only the highest sales per square foot. The two are related to some degree, of course, because if you put a lot of velocity through the stores, that's how you make your money. Yep. Um, really, really high quality business, doing a fantastic job. The question I mentioned before, though, about Joyce is the question around COVID impact. And you've got to ask yourself, you know, how sustainable is the current level of sales? I think it's pretty likely. And we saw the first, I think it was six or eight weeks when they released their numbers at the AGM. Their first six or eight weeks of sales were actually down meaningfully. I'm pretty sure it was double digits on the previous year. And that's not a sign of a bad retailer. That's just a sign of they took some money that was being thrown at them when it was being thrown at them, and they absolutely should. And I'm not going to penalise anybody for taking money last year and not being able to repeat the, the dose this year. You'd be mad not to. It's like if your boss said, you want a bonus? He said, well, I'm not going to take it now unless you give it to me next year as well. Um, mm-hmm. Of course you take the money, right? Then you worry about the comparison next year. So really good business, but some of the COVID impact is absolutely coming off. It's currently trading about 12.5 times earnings, a 5.1% fully frank yield from the probably the second best retailer in the country. Bunnings still far and away the best retailer in my mind, but JB, a, a pretty close second, not not super close. Bunnings is spectacular. Uh, but JB, really, really close in terms of the, the rest of the pack. It's it's the second second with, with Daylight Third. Um, so I like I like it a lot. I, it's a challenge to know how much to pay for it, Koshi. I'm 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 kind of inclined to make this one a hold. I would yeah. not absolutely not sell it if I owned it. Absolutely not. Do I think it's going to beat the market from here? I think I want to see how bad the drop-off is in sales uh, after the year to try and work out again. I took about, you know, try and work out what normal looks like. I don't really have a strong handle on JB Hi-Fi's normal from here. I do think, by the way, the challenge with their business 
their, their great store network is actually managing that store network when it's in decline. And I don't think that's too far away. I'm not going to do predictions because it's a mugs game, but we talked about online before. JB Hi-Fi is doing a great job online, but all of a sudden those stores go from profit centers to cost centers if and when sales start to turn negative or even just grow only moderately quickly because they've got light bills, power bills, rent, staff that all go up over time. So you've really got to keep growing at a moderate rate just to stand still. And at some point, JB Hi-Fi's own online store plus other competitors are going to start to take market share away from physical retail and bigger and bigger lumps. And I'm not sure how JB is going to manage what is a massive, massive store network. We've seen Meyer and DJ struggle with that over the last decade. They were 15 years earlier than these guys are going to be. But at some point, JB Hi-Fi have to start closing stores. This is, there's so many of them, mm-hmm. mate. And their customers probably are more likely than most to go online because they're getting the younger demographic. Um, you know, The demographic at Harvey Norman, for example, won't go online as quickly or as significantly. JB Hi-Fi customers like, hey, they're young, they're hip, they're cool, they're already shopping online. They might even shop at JB online. But dealing with that cost base is going to be a challenge. I'm going to have to say hold for now. I might change my mind super quickly when the next set of numbers come out. But for now, just just to wait and see and see what the impact is on on long-term sales. Kevin, JB Hi-Fi. Agree with Scott. One of the best retailers in Australia, and for all those reasons, it it is a very low cost retailer. It's managed to keep its cost down really, really well. The other thing they do is in some of their, you know, like their their tech equipment and so forth, they have really helpful uh, people that will help you understand what you need mm. and so forth. That for a low cost retailer, often that doesn't go along with low cost retailers. So it seems to be a, a winning combination for them. Um, and also, like Scott says, uh, you wonder how they'll do with um, uh, with online. I my own thoughts are that the best retail businesses will be the ones who will be able to combine the two in an optimum way, because a lot of people still want the experience of shopping. Uh, one of those Accent Group, for example, has done that very, very well with some of their initiatives. So it'd be interesting to watch uh, JB Hi-Fi and see if they, they manage to make that combination work for them as well. Um, it is one of, you know, we see it as potentially having very high high returns. Uh, one of our concerns for a business would have been the fact that the CEO left suddenly. Mm. So Richard Murray left for Solomon Lou's group, Premier Retail. Uh, Solomon is very good at picking his, his good CEOs. Um, but... The thing is that Terry Smart has moved into the seat and he was uh, he was the head of the good guys and made that integrate really well. He's also been a past CEO of uh, JB Hi-Fi. So I'm not as concerned about that as I would normally be with a sudden departure of a CEO because they've got someone who has a history with the company, has a history of doing excellent business in another part of the company. So, uh, you know, that for me, that that's comforting. As Scott says, it'd be interesting to watch. At the moment, I personally, I would buy it. Um, I think it could be a good buy. And yes, I'm aware of the ramp down on uh, from the COVID effect. Right. I think there's less of an effect for JB Hi-Fi given what they sell compared to uh, furniture retailers like Nick Scarly, for instance. Sure. Uh, you don't buy beds that often or sofas that often. If you If you bought one during COVID, you're not likely to buy one for a while. Computer equipment, entertainment, you know, that sort of thing tends yep. to be a more sticky buy. Okay. All right, our final stop. We'll have to whip through this because we're running out of time, gents. Uh, Kevin, uh, Megan wants to be on Domain Holdings, the big online real estate classified business, uh, realestate.com, REA's uh, biggest competitor. 
uh, owned by the, the Nine Group. Um, what do you think of Domain? It doesn't pass our filters. Um, the return on equity and return on capital is too low. Uh, they're the main things. The stability of earnings is a little bit low. They are the, uh, they're to some extent, uh, the second, they're playing second to uh, real estate group. Yeah. Um, and in a market where you rely on technology to do what you want, um, second tends to be much lower than first. Mm. Okay. Uh, and having said that, uh, most real estate agents advertise on a number of different platforms, so uh, they, they're still in the game, if you like. But it doesn't match our filters, so it wouldn't okay. come up for us. Scott, what do you think? Yeah, Koshi, I'll keep it brief. I like domain as a business. I, I take Kevin's points, but as he says at the end, I agree with that as well. But you're going to, it's probably the only classified business you can pretty much assume almost complete duplication across networks. If you're selling a $5,000 used car, you probably use car sales. You don't bother with whatever other ones are out there. If you're applying for a job or, or looking for, for people, you're going to use Seek, right? It makes perfect sense. If you're going to look for business television, you're going to look for Ausbiz, of course, Koshi. Um, <laughs> but if you're looking for housing or you're, you're listing your home, you're not going to say, well, REA is bigger, I'm not going to bother with domain because if someone's on domain going to spend a million dollars to buy your house and they don't happen to go on the REA app, you want to be in both places, right? So um, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a really, really strong business. It is number two and that does absolutely bring less scale benefit and so it's not as good a business as REA. Problem is it's 70 times earnings and look, they've, they've done really, really well during COVID. We know house prices have been through the roof. That's been great for their business. Maybe the growth continues. I don't know for how long you can compound things like those listing fees, the premier placements, all that kind of stuff. So like the business a lot, really happy to own it if I own it. If you've had it for a period of time, you've got a good cost base, then maybe hang on to it for a while, but um, I, I don't want to buy it at 70 times earnings. Scott Phillips from the Molling Fall, great to have you on board uh, as usual. Have a good rest of the week. And uh, Kevin Robertson from, uh, from Team Invest, uh, great to have you on board as well. Thank you, gents. All right, Thanks, just Josh. to uh, quickly recap the final five stocks, Pacific Edge and No from uh, both Kevin and Scott. Uh, Acro Framework, a um, tentative buy from Scott, a No from Kevin, Horizon, a No. Uh, JB Hi-Fi, a hold from Scott and a buy from Kevin and Domain, a hold from Scott, a No from Kevin. Uh, if you'd like any stocks for us to uh, to analyse here and put to the expert panels, uh, put them in an email, the call at ausbiz.com.au or tweet us using the ad Ausbiz TV handle. All the stocks in the calls portfolio, ausbiz.co forward slash portfolio. We're taking the call international this Friday. We'll be reviewing 10 international stocks, the international exposure that you may be after. If you want to gain an expert opinion on international stocks uh, at the top of your watch list, send any suggestions to the call at ausbiz.com.au. Charlie Aitken from Aitken Investment Management and David Lane from Orge will be running the ruler over the international stock pick. So very much looking forward to that. Mm -hmm.